This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coverline. In society at large, evolution is a controversial topic. But even within the scientific community, controversies rage on. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Greg Babbitt, an assistant professor of biology at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He will tell us some of the ways biologists disagree about the role molecules play in natural selection. On the other hand, we'll learn about how molecular evolution provides an additional proof to the theory of evolution. So I understand your area is molecular evolution. Molecular evolution is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's the, the study of the evolutionary process on Earth through the study of molecules, particularly DNA sequences or protein amino acid sequences as well. These are the little chunks of uh, chemicals that make up DNA, and we, we right. represent them by strings of letters, and then we look at how mutation has changed those over time, and we compare different organisms' genomes to each other, and we can infer things about the evolutionary process. What does that tell you? I mean, typically we think of evolution as something that's natural selection, species change yeah. over time, you have changing into different yeah. species and stuff. It's kind of a misconception that evolution and natural selection are the same thing. Evolution, okay. an evolutionary process simply means a process of change, and that can include very many neutral processes. In fact, it was the field of molecular evolution that discovered that a lot of evolution on this planet has been driven by largely neutral processes or processes that aren't necessarily necessarily selected for or against. It's just random change. So just kind of a random walk. If you had nowhere to go on a particular day and you left out your house and started walking and turned every time you thought you wanted to, that would be a neutral process. Right. So we think of evolution as kind of a zombie run, but that's not really the case. Yeah. It's yeah. not a matter of avoiding all the dangers. Yeah. Natural selection is essentially a directed walk. Okay. So it's it's something quite different. We often think of it as, as either a walk towards some sort of new adaptive state or some state that's beneficial. And we often think of natural selection as that, but selection actually works much more frequently in our bodies to preserve things, to keep things from just randomly changing. And that's mm -hmm. a type of selection we call purifying selection, or it's also called functional conservation in terms of a protein and its function. You don't want it to change because it does something important. So one of the things that evolution can tell us that I think is fascinating is that it's not just all about what are the new and novel adaptations that make different organisms different from each other, but it, it also can tell us where the function lies, particularly in our genomes, where we suspect that a large part of our genome is actually not very functional. Right. And so we want to know where the critical functioning parts are that might relate to health and disease. So there's actually a very practical side. Okay, so the, so the things that make you healthier, you're more likely to survive and pass on even though there's no yeah. outside competition from that. Yeah, what we see is that we, we have sort of a reduction of the rate of mutations uh, that are visible in our genome. Uh, there's a lot of repair processes in the cell and these mutations are happening, but they're being essentially selected out of the populations because they have slightly deleterious or even detrimentally deleterious effects or negative effects on individuals right. that carry them. 
making them less likely to survive and propagate. Okay, so it's it's much more of a competition with ourselves than it is yeah. an external competition. I mean, one of the things that I know is talked about is the level of information. The the idea that we evolve towards complexity, I think, is a common misconception. That oh yes, and that's that's been around for ages and ages. And this this idea that we're somehow progressing towards uh, a state of more complexity. The Earth's diversity has increased over time and generally increases and then is sort of culled back down by these mass extinctions that occur Mm -hmm. periodically, including the one that's happening right now, which is one of the largest. But largely throughout most of evolutionary history, there's been an increase in diversity over time. And it was actually Darwin's theory. It wasn't his theory of natural selection or the mechanism that was so well received by his, his colleagues and fellow scientists at the time. It was really his explanation of the tree of life as a diversification process mm-hmm. that before that paleontologists had noticed that diversity was increasing over periods of time but they had no way to explain it right and then it was really his idea of the tree that made that book so popular in fact the mechanism of natural selection through gradual change was argued about for many many decades nearly a half century afterwards Darwin didn't come up with yeah. by himself. And, and it was actually a group of scientists much later in the 1930s and 40s that were sort of neo-Darwinians who really sort of championed this view of, of evolution as Darwin sort of suggested it. But then even you know the idea that most of the variation we see around us is due to selection and due to adaptation was then uh, an idea that stayed with us all the way into the 1980s. And it wasn't until molecular evolutionists came along and pointed out that it looks like most of the what we call the nucleobase substitutions in DNA are arising due to chance and not due to a selective process. So there's this kind of genetic drift and then therefore and, you get this diversity yeah. growth. And this is one of the things it. that's unresolved even now is this sort of selectionist versus versus neutralist view. The people who study the molecular, who actually founded the molecular evolutionary fields really championed this at the start, and the people that studied evolution at a more organismal level championed selectionist-centric view. And and those of us in the field today sort of are hesitant to sort of get into that argument um, <laughs> because, you know, there's, all, there's the, all, the, in all the older guys with opinions will start jumping on us and challenging so, us. So, so it's kind of avoided now, but it's still there. It's still a, an unresolved issue. And there, there's certainly both processes happening, mutations and then a filtering those by the process of selection. But we really don't know where the balance point is and how that's being sort of maintained. It's it's an active area of study now is to not take one side or the other, but actually try to quantitate where that balance point is. Where that point is. So that would seem to go against the idea that the common idea that, well, humans don't evolve anymore because we don't have any natural selection pressures. We don't sure. have any well, predators we're, we're that evolving. are taking us it out anymore. It may not anymore. be adaptive, but we're certainly evolving. We're, we're hitting time. that genetic drift we're, still. Can we see um, that in human generations? I mean, you know, I don't know. We're we're really the newcomers on the block. You know, right. we've only been around for such a short time, and these processes are actually much more easily observed in what we call deep lineages. So I seldom work with with human DNA simply because you have to walk you have to run so far through the data to even find a base change. If I'm looking at yeasts, uh, I can find one every 
10 or 20 or 30 bases, you know, no problem. So in order for my mathematics to work, I need to have lots of mutations to play around with. So human DNA is not always very useful to me. And and ironically, the fruit fly, which is this model of genetics and everything, is not very useful either for exactly the same reasons. Most of it, it's had rapid diversification. Um, right. in lineages fairly recently within the last few million years. So it's um, also the, the sort of showing the same characteristics. I know you brought up the yeast thing. I know th- there's an experiment that's gone, what was it, 30 years, 35 years, something like that, of doing mm-hmm. yeast breeding and like changing the temperature and changing the yeah. environments. Yeah. Is that- it's interesting that you bring that up because it brings up a sort of a, a problem that I had stumbled upon and have, have, have been sort of publishing on recently. And, and it's it's the fact that when we watch mutation accumulate in the lab, and there's been laboratory studies now with all the common model organisms of biology, we generally don't see the same spectrum of mutation or the same types of mutations that we see when we compare one sequence to another. Uh, and that's sort of through a, a comparative process or compare what we call comparative genomics. And it's surprising because if you think that things are evolving neutrally and pretty much randomly, then you would expect that when you compare sequence A to sequence B, that the differences would represent that process, but they don't actually. When we actually watch it in the lab in, in organisms that can turn over very rapidly, such as yeast and bacteria and and even C. elegans, the nematode worm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a colleague who studies that. We see very different um, sort of uh, patterns of mutation, and they don't follow what we see in genomics. So it's a, another unresolved um, issue. So you're seeing that when you when you apply constraints, they evolve very differently than when yeah. you don't apply constraints. And my pet conjecture, which is is out there now and has actually been f- kind of fairly recently confirmed, uh, in part by some work out at UC Berkeley. Uh, is that that the the DNA being packaged having to be packaged in what we call chromatin, which is this protein and DNA complex that makes up the chromosome, mm-hmm. that that actually puts a sort of universal selective pressure on the physics of the DNA and its right. ability to bend. And we find that if we look at those energies with biophysical models, we see that. Um, it actually does describe the patterns of mutation that we see. And we did that sort of with a computer with no money at all. And an an undergrad, we programmed it and had it run for a few weeks on my my desktop that RIT (laughs) gave me. Um, We had a paper out in about six months, and then it sat there for a few years. And then finally, Charles Langley out at UC Berkeley decided to throw some real money at the problem and Mm -hmm. actually map the positions of those proteins uh, that are called histones or nucleosomes map the positions of those in a population of fruit flies and sure enough they were finding that the pattern of mutation was following where those positions were okay so it it can't be just random because it has to fit back into the box yeah so basically the packaging of the dna which is quite an amazing feat really when you Mm -hmm. think about there's meters of dna and in all of your cells, uh, and and that's what makes it informationally stable over deep time. I mean, from a molecular point of view, DNA is kind of fascinating. Really, any polymer is because it has sort of an extreme scale and length on one side, and then it still can be interactive through its scale of width, which is you know in the case of DNA is like twelve angstroms. Right. So you know DNA has to interact with a lot of things, a lot of protein, in order for that information to be accessed. And yet you don't want the information destroyed by, you know, random thermal noise, essentially. Right. So when I think of evolution, I think of 
things like the fossil record. That's always been the traditional way of doing it is that we can find dinosaur bones and other things in, in fossils. And from that, we can piece together how organisms have yes. evolved over time. And I would suspect molecular biology is a, another way to do that. So for, you know, for literally a couple hundred years now, we've been looking at fossils and trying to figure out their relationships. And oftentimes, traditionally, this was done through comparing morphology or actually measuring bones in very careful and specific ways, a field that we call morphometrics. That's been the bread and butter of paleontology. And through lots and lots of blood, sweat, and tears came a, a view of the tree of life um, right. from looking at this. But what's amazing to me about molecular evolution is just in the last couple of decades, essentially, and with computers and looking only at the DNA of living organisms that are around mm -hmm. us today that we can collect, we can reconstruct that exact same tree of life almost exactly in the same way. So to me, if, if you had any doubts about, about evolution and its, and its reality on this planet, I mean, here we have two completely different sources of data that speak to the exact same story. Right. The molecular evolutionary story isn't finished. We're now starting to actually sequence organisms that have already gone extinct. So we have mm -hmm. a, a mastodon genome, cave bears, a lot of the Pleistocene now, including Neanderthals, have been uh, sequenced. And through molecular evolutionary me methods of inference, we can actually reconstruct the DNA sequences of the common ancestors we've had with those extinct forms. And then we can go into the lab and we if we want to, we can even reconstruct the ancient proteins or the states of the proteins as they were in the past. And there's been some really interesting studies in just the last year or so where people are doing that pretty easily. It's a kind of an interesting argument because a lot of the ones, one of the common arguments is, well, you don't know you weren't there. And yet with genetics, it's like, no, it's here. The, the record is still yeah. here. It's not something that was. It's still active. And I found, personally, molecular evolution has, has been a, a great thing for me to study because it really combines two things I always had a passion for. Biology, which was a passion since I was a small child, uh, but more recently, a, a passion for statistics and math that I mm -hmm. picked up quite a bit later. But it allows me to sort of use both of those things and ask you know, very fundamental and deep, important questions. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Korberlein. We've been talking with Dr. Greg Babbitt, Assistant Professor of Biology at RIT, about molecular evolution. In the second half of our show, Dr. Babbitt has a few questions to ask me. He wants to know more about the formation of water and organic materials in space. Brian, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how life might have sort of come about out there in outer space, if possibly it we know at least it has once. <laughs> yeah, we have a sample um, size of one. As I, as I might suspect with sample sizes like that, it, it's probably going to get greater. One would hope. Rather than smaller. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, considering the alternatives. <laughs> but one of the things that life on Earth really requires is water. And it's mm -hmm. and, and even at the molecular level, the water, the, the, the DNA is very water-loving. And proteins, amino acids, are actually defined in terms of their hydrophobicity. And we've even right. recently discovered that the genetic code is perhaps very adaptive in minimizing errors with respect to the water-loving nature of proteins. Mm -hmm. So I, I was wondering about where does water come from and how does that work? When we think of Earth, we think of Earth as being a water world. And in contrast to other planets, Mars is fairly dry, although it has had water on it. Venus is dry. Earth is very wet. We think of that as being an ocean world. 
In fact, water's far more common than you might think. One of the things that we found is that water actually forms fairly easily in space. It's a fairly common molecule. So there's plenty of water out there. One of the more recent things we've looked at in terms of things like the moons of Jupiter and Saturn are actually water rich. There is actually more water on Ganymede than there is on Earth. And Ganymede is one of the uh, moons of Jupiter. And it's a small moon of Jupiter. I mean, I mean, it's a large mm-hmm. moon of Jupiter, but it's much smaller than Earth, and yet it has far more water. It has more liquid water than Earth has. So we know water is very common, but we also know that water isn't very common close to the sun. In other words, at, at Earth distances, Venus doesn't have a whole lot of water. Mars doesn't have a whole lot of water. So one of the questions has been, how has it gotten there? And the kind of traditional view has been that in the early formation of the planets, there was a period called the heavy bombardment period in which lots of comets and meteors and things would bombard Earth and other planets, and that they were the ones that brought water. So the the traditional idea was that comets from the, the cold depths of the solar system would come swinging in, collide with Earth, and of course, since they're snowballs, all that water would go onto Earth. Um, We've actually found that that's not quite the case. Uh, We can look at, for example, the isotope ratios in water on Earth and in water on comets and on asteroids. And what we find is they're a better match to asteroids than they are to comets. The idea now is that a lot of the water came from asteroid bombardments, not comet bombardments. And and were most of the asteroids the product of a single cataclysmic event in our solar system or do they form naturally in most solar systems do we know well we don't we don't know about asteroids in most solar systems we know in our solar system they're just part of the natural process and that seems reasonable we see when when things form in terms of clumps when you have planets there's there's kind of a scale ratio it's called log normal and the basic idea of that is that if you have for every one body at uh, one kilometer, for example, you might have a hundred bodies at a hundred meters and then a mm-hmm. thousand bodies at 10 meters and so on all the way down. So what you get is the smaller down the scale you go, the more numerous those objects are. So asteroids being fairly small compared to things like planets are much more common and they're more common on a smaller scale. I see. And that's just in terms of how things form. If you think, see how, how things gravitate together, uh, they would form you know small chunks, and then some of those small chunks would form larger chunks and so forth. Now, I know there's been a, an explosion recently in the discovery of these planets in other solar systems. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know if, if any of those are having water on the surface of them mostly? or We know that there are planets that are within the right distance from a star in order to have liquid water if that happens to exist. It's, it's one of those things where we can tell on temperature that they could have liquid water. That doesn't mean that they do. We know in large planets, there's some large planet observations where we found water in the atmospheres of, of very, very large planets, so gas, Jupiter-like planets. So it's, it's not unreasonable to say that there's going to be rocky planets like Earth that have water mm-hmm. on them. We know water is common, we know planets are common. So even though we haven't directly observed one, statistically, 
that's pretty likely. I'm also quite interested in the recent discoveries of nucleic acids on some of these asteroids. I know we've known for a while that there's amino acids mm-hmm. that are um, that can be extraterrestrial in origin. Right. A certain number of these amino acids are encoded by our DNA, and some of them aren't. Could you tell me more about the possibility that uh, maybe our planet was once seeded with sort of the building blocks. Yeah, this is this is one of those things that sometimes makes astronomers a little bit twitchy because there's <laughs> the idea of the building blocks of life reaching Earth as opposed to something called panspermia, the idea that other living organisms traveled across space to land on Earth. That's far more speculative, the idea that, that actual living organisms came from space and landed on Earth, and then that's how life began here. What we know is we've got some meteorites that have hit Earth. One of the most famous ones is known as the Murchison meteorite that landed in Australia in 1969. And it has a lot of benefits. It's one of the most studied meteorites because we saw it hit in 1969. We observed the, the fall, so we know when it hit. The meteorite material was gathered fairly quickly. And so soon after the impact, we were able to gather this material and therefore limit the amount of contamination that might be there. The other thing is that it's, we, we've gathered about 100 kilograms of mass, which is actually pretty large. So we have this lots of material that's not largely contaminated that we know exactly when it hit. And there have been studies of what types of molecules or organics might be on there. And yeah, we've found all of these building blocks of life and sugars and amino acids and, and um, various stuff like that. There's actually a wide range. You know, one of the things that we've found is that they they tend to have an even mix of left and right handedness. Mm-hmm. And I think life uses, what is it, left-handed amino acids yes, and oh, yes, right-handed sugars, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, so it's the fact that there's a mix points to an extraterrestrial origin, the fact that it formed in space. It didn't form by biological means. It didn't form by life. It formed from complex chemistry. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that that, that these kinds of questions make you twitchy because in biology we sort of are the same way and it's it's in part because the DNA is universal and and Mm -hmm. we have essentially a sample of one we don't have any other organisms that use <clears throat> anything else for for information storage. It's it's usually nucleic acid based, either be it either right. RNA or DNA, and so it makes it a very the origin of life is a very tough thing to study for biologists. Mm-hmm. We study lots of aspects of life, but to get at the actual like questions right. around the origin is very hard because there's no there's no variation. <laughs> right, right. And it, in in astronomy, it's it's it makes us somewhat more twitchy too because it starts falling outside of our field. You sure. know, we don't want to overstep the bounds and say, well, okay, so we found molecules, but you know, as a physicist or an astrophysicist, it's all chemistry. You know, we can look at the complex chemistry, and and that's another aspect of it is that we found complex molecules actually do form in space, yeah. which was something that we didn't think. You know, now, are, are there clouds of com- these complex molecules in space? There are molecular clouds, and mm. and we know now that there's complex chemistry that can occur within those, uh, and mm. we can see them by spectroscopy. We can look at you know the light that's either emitted or absorbed from these clouds, and we can match them to certain organic molecules. I see. And are there clouds of amino acids and those sorts of things? I, I don't know if there are clouds of amino acids. The, the biggest one is there, there are clouds of alcohol. 
And so that makes a big thing with headlines and jokes that, you know, yeah, out yeah. in space, there are these millions of liters of vodka <laughs> you know, that you could find in space. Um, well, now we know where we're going to go. Now we know where we can go. Right. Once <laughs> yeah. we can go there. Yeah, we, we know that we can have a good time once we get there. I've heard a little bit about this Drake equation, which is, mm-hmm. if I, as I understand it, it's sort of a way of quantitating the probability of life and even intelligent life. Given all of the information we have, we know that water is common, we know that complex organics are common, we know the building blocks of life are common, and that all of those can form in space. We also know that when we look at other stars, the idea of them having planets is, is they're very common. We know that most plant stars have planets, and we know that it's very likely for many stars to have Earth-like planets, both in terms of temperature and in terms of mass. So all the directions, if you look at the Drake equation, the Drake equation is basically how many stars might have planets, how many of them might be habitable, how many could have life form on them, how many of those would have long-term living organisms that would evolve to intelligence, how many of them would communicate. And so you can try and estimate these different things to find out what are the odds of other civilizations. And traditionally, the Drake equation, when it was first proposed, you think of Carl Sagan coming up with this, you know, describing the Drake equation, almost all of them were question marks. We knew how many stars were out there, but we didn't know how many of them had planets. We didn't know how many of them might have habitable planets or any of that. So it was just a wild guess. And what we're finding is for the ones that we know, the chant, the, the odds are very high. So, so if you need stars, we got plenty of stars. You need planets, plenty of planets. Habitable planets of the right temperature, plenty of it. The right ingredients, plenty of it. Which raises the question of why don't we see other living forms? Why don't we see other civilizations, mm-hmm. for example? Because we still have question marks. We don't know how many planets in which it's possibly habitable would life form. We only know that yeah. on Earth. We it, may it be sounds extraordinarily like rare. E- it sounds like the Drake equation sort of has a, an assumption of a, some sort of a progression to a complex life form. There, and, there is a little bit of that. Molecular I mean, evolution sort of speaks against that in that we, we have a diversification process that we can observe. But, right, and that's... But, but there's no guarantee that even given millions upon millions of years that you would actually have something special come out of that process. Right, right. And that's that's where the big question marks are because we know that everything up to the building blocks of life on wet, habitable worlds seems to be very common. And then you get into biology. How do you go from a wet, habitable world with building blocks to living organisms, for one? And then how do those living organisms evolve into sentient human intelligence creatures? And we're we're thinking that life life arose fairly early, actually, in the history of Earth. So even that's not implausible. But when you think of high intelligence, you know, that's an adaptive trait and it's an expensive trait. Our brain tissue is one of the most um, energetically hungry tissues in our bodies Mm -hmm. and um, and our our large brains are definitely costly in terms of our energy budget. So that's not something any organism is going to evolve towards necessarily even randomly. You know, that's something that would have to have a direct benefit, you know, in the in the overall right. and know, that, budget that, of the animal. That may be the answer to, there's, so. there's a thing called the Fermi paradox, which is if life or intelligent life is common, why don't we see them? 
because if you think a human li- a species like ours if we could go to the nearest star then we can go to the next nearest star and that would happen on a geological scale fairly quickly why don't we see civilizations yeah. or evidence of civilizations elsewhere and it might be that it might but be the, that everything's easy up to the point of life but intelligence is hard yeah. or and the, the distances are vast I, the distances I just, are vast something as a biologist i have sometimes trouble wrapping my head around how how vast it is that these distances are and you are looking back in time across them so right right and you're talking about you know tens of thousands of years to get to them uh, but even things like radio signals, if you made direct radio signals transmitting to other stars, if there were other civilizations, we don't see any evidence of, of radio signals or anything from other species. You know, the, the direct evidence we have of intelligent life in outer space is zero. That's the problem with a sample size of one. We don't know whether we're average or exceptional. You know, we exactly, might actually yeah. be extraordinarily rare, and that's why you know we're not we're not seeing it or we might be the first so it all boils down to to what my statistics professor said you know you need to have an adequate sample size that's right in order to quantify your level of uncertainty and then you can say things with certainty we have a very inadequate sample size (laughs) (laughs) we've been talking with dr greg babbitt an assistant professor of biology at the rochester institute of technology Our program is produced at RIT by Mark Gillespie with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Corberline. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.